We are all now well-versed with courtrooms and proceedings from TV and films, even if we've never set foot in a courtroom. Lawyers battling, discrediting witnesses, muddying waters. It's all like a personal duel. However, historically having lawyers support you wasn't always an available option and courtrooms would have most prisoners feeling powerless, bewildered and terrified. Historical Crimes and Criminals podcast. I'm Steve, your host, and this is another History Bite episode. The Old Bailey sat in session every eight weeks and examined cases that came within the City of London. If found guilty on a capital charge, you'd probably be hanged about a week later. But let's look at the process of these trials from start to finish and how these cases would be tried. Each case would commence with a shorthand writer in the courtroom taking down notes of each Bailey trial. These were subsequently written up and published following each meeting of the court, the sessions, and sold as proceedings. From 1834, these old Bailey sessions would be increased to 10 or 12 times a year. Now published online, these old Bailey sessions as well as the Newgate calendar, are a godsend for historians to find information on historical crime cases. Criminal trials in the 18th and 19th century were very different from today. They were quick. Lawyers were rarely present until the early 19th century, and since there was no fully developed law of evidence, prosecutors Judges and jurors exercised considerable discretion in how they interpreted the law. Several 19th century reforms improved conditions for the defence, but defendants still operated under severe disadvantages. At the meetings of the court at the Old Bailey, the clerks drew up indictments according to set formulas based on the identity of the accused provided by prison keepers and information about the nature of the alleged crimes from pre-trial depositions. Decisions taken at this stage of the legal process were important since the way the offence was defined would determine the punishments the defendant might receive if convicted, and particularly until the early 19th century, whether or not the offence was punishable by death. The sessions at the Old Bailey had grand juries, composed of propertied men. They met to assess the indictments and decide whether there was sufficient evidence to try a case before a trial jury. At this point, prosecutors, they would be thief takers for example, 
and their witnesses, but not the defendants, could testify. At this point, if a grand jury believed the evidence was sufficient to warrant a trial, they were approved as true bills. Those rejected were labelled not found and the case was dropped. The problem with this system was the grand juries often had little information to go on and no legal training. Consequently, for most of the period, a significant number of cases were rejected and in the early 19th century, the grand juries in London acquired the nickname The Hope of London Thieves. From 1838, a clerk attended meetings of the grand jury to offer advice and therefore far fewer cases were dropped at this stage. There were repeated calls for the abolition of the grand jury throughout the 19th century, all of which came to nothing. Nevertheless, its role was gradually reduced as pre-trial investigations by justices and the police force weeded out weak cases before indictments were drawn up. Charges of murder and manslaughter formulated by the coroner's juries did not need to be approved by the grand jury and these cases automatically went to trial. At this point, with the prisoners who would face trial identified, the Newgate calendar of prisoners was drawn up, listing the prisoners and the charges they would face. The charge would then be read to the prisoner, who was asked to enter a plea. The vast majority pleaded not guilty. Until the number of capital offences was significantly reduced in the early 19th century, the court encouraged this plea because if a defendant confessed to a crime, there was no flexibility in the punishment they could receive. Whereas, if a trial took place, evidence could be introduced which might determine whether the defendant merited a lesser sentence or subsequent pardon. With the decline of the death penalty, guilty pleas, often the result of plea bargaining, became more common, but still accounted for only 20% of verdicts from the 1830s onwards. The trial started with the prosecutor, victim or counsel presenting the case against the defendant, followed by the prosecution witnesses who testified under oath. This witness testimony was the most common source of evidence. Cross-examinations were conducted by the judge, the defendant or increasingly by defence lawyers. The defendant, who until 1898 was not put under oath, was then asked to state his or her case. Defendant testimony was often abridged in the published Old Bailey proceedings. Defendants could call their own witnesses, but unlike prosecutors, they could not compel witnesses to attend. And since trials were not scheduled, it was impossible to predict precisely when a witness would need to appear in court. Witnesses who could testify to a defendant's good character were especially helpful, even if the defendant was found guilty. A good reputation might lead to a lesser punishment. Outside the Old Bailey, men walked up and down with straw tucked into their trousers. These were called straw men, who were happy to perjure themselves to earn some money and testify to good character. Trials were quick and often lasted less than half an hour. Such was the rapidity in which the trials were held 
at severely disadvantaged defendants. A further difference from modern practice is that the same jury would hear many cases at a single meeting of the court. New juries were not summoned for each case. Lawyers began to appear in criminal trials from the 1730s, gradually appearing more frequently. The presence of the Prosecution Council was encouraged by a 1778 statute which allowed the payment of expenses to all prosecutors of successful cases. And it was by 1834 the use of Prosecution Council was also widespread. Despite the lack of financial assistance, Defence Council outnumbered Prosecution Council throughout the 18th and early 19th centuries. Defendants, who often faced death if convicted, recognised the benefits of legal assistance and these lawyers were paid up front. In the 1820s, judges began to assign lawyers to speak on behalf of the prisoners accused of serious offences. It was also possible for poor prisoners to secure legal representation through a benefactor. The sheriffs of London provided such a fund for assistance from early 19th century, but relatively few defendants benefited from these provisions. It was not until the Poor Prisoners Defence Act of 1903 that an effective form of legal aid was introduced. The biggest impact for defence lawyers in trials was through the cross-examination of prosecution witnesses. Defence counsel was often able to question the motives of the prosecutor in bringing the case and of the witnesses for testifying against the accused. It was often the case that when the principals were eligible to receive a reward for a successful convictions, as was the case of thief takers, or could earn immunity from prosecution by testifying against accomplices, their word in court was open to doubt. The participation of defence lawyers meant that in many cases, defendants no longer spoke at all. This eventually led to defendants acquiring the privilege of remaining silent and in the process contributing to shifting the burden of proof onto the prosecutor. Judges at the Old Bailey were made up of the common law judges from the High Courts at Westminster. Also present would be the Recorder, who was a principal legal officer, the Common Sergeant, legal advisor to the Court of Common Council, the Lord Mayor and the Aldermen of the City of London. In practice, only two common law judges actually attended and they only heard the most serious of cases, with the remainder of the cases heard by the city officials. When lawyers were not present, judges played a major role in questioning witnesses and defendants, although these interventions were often omitted or abridged in the Old Bailey proceedings. Throughout the whole period, however, as today, the judges were charged with the weighty task of sentencing those found guilty. The trial jury retired or huddled and reached its verdict. Until 1858, they would be kept without fire, food or drink until a verdict was agreed. In fact, their decisions normally took very little time, which suggests the views of the foreman and the most experienced jurors tended to predominate. The jury could choose between innocent 
guilty or a partial verdict. In the last case, defendants were found guilty of part of the charges against them or of a lesser offence. Juries could also recommend the judges show mercy when sentencing the convict. Until the early 19th century, it was usual for the prisoners who had been found guilty to be brought forward in batches at the end of the sessions to hear their punishments. By the 1840s, however, sentences were commonly passed immediately following each trial. Defendants who were convicted of capital crimes were given a chance to address the court before they were sentenced. Although the punishments available in each case depended on the specific offence in which the defendant was convicted, judges had some flexibility in choosing punishments. This ranged from death to a small fine and included transportation, imprisonments, whipping, service in the navy or army, and finding sureties to guaranteed good behaviour. A maiden session in which no one was condemned to death was relatively rare before the reforms of the 1820s. Where the sentence was not death or transportation, it often involved a combination of punishments such as imprisonment and whipping. Death sentences were routinely reviewed by the monarch and or his or her ministers who had the power to award free or conditional pardons although public opinion could heavily influence any decisions. Records however show that some 60% of those sentenced to death in the 18th century were pardoned and this figure rose to 90% in the 1830s. Well, that's it for another History Byte episode. I hope you enjoyed that. If you did, please subscribe, leave a review, tell your friends, and follow me on Twitter and Facebook at the Historical Crimes and Criminals podcast. I've been Steve, your host.